Once again, I want to welcome you to our online service here at Jubilee Church. My name is Greg Nelson, one of the elders at the city location. JFAM, I'm so excited that you've chosen to be with us this morning for the second installment in our series, Daniel, Behind Enemy Lines. You may have noticed that we're not doing this sequentially like we normally would, um, but I believe that what God has to say to us this morning is going to be truly impactful. The last time we were in the book of Daniel, we considered the power of identity. Uh, Remember that Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were ancient Hebrew youths kidnapped by the king of Babylon. They were enslaved and they were carried off to the nation of Babylon, the world superpower of their day. They were wined and dined in an attempt to turn their allegiance toward the king, and they were also renamed. And as it says um, in, uh, in, in Star Trek, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. This was the perspective of the Babylonian captors. They wanted to turn these Hebrew youths from their old culture, their old identity, their old worldview to the new identity of their uh, Babylonian masters. But this had real import for them. Because their names, the names that they were given in their youth, had significant spiritual meaning. Their names, the meanings of their names, declared things about the nature of the Hebrew God, Yahweh, who he was, uh, about his character, about things that he had done. And to change those names was to cause a schism or to separate them from that history, from that culture, from that identity. This was important for us to recognize and to consider because as modern people, just like these Hebrew youths, we are living in a foreign land. Not a land that's foreign because we didn't grow up there. You know, I was born in America. I was raised as an American. But because our true allegiance, our true culture is God's culture. Don't fall asleep on this. Modern American culture is not aligned with God's culture. And even the Christian subculture that we are sometimes steeped in has been taking its cues from the world in many ways. Uh, Radical individualism, capitalism, and political idolatry are everywhere. So this struggle to have our identities formed and shaped and um, planted in the foundations of God's truth, this has been a struggle and a deep concern for God's covenant people for thousands of years. Now we see that after being confronted with renaming and the challenge to abandon Yahweh as the centerpiece of their lives, Daniel and his friends are confronted with new challenges. The text says that they were given a portion of the king's food, but they refused it. Now, why in the world would you refuse a meal fit for a king? For some perspective, you have to understand that during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, these Hebrew youths and their families would have been trapped inside the fortified walls of the city of Jerusalem for 18 months, 18 months, nowhere to go, constantly hearing the sound of the battle siege and battle works being built. 18 months, starved out, literally starved out of the city when the Babylonian forces had captured them. Then they were marched 900 miles across the desert from modern-day Israel to modern-day Iraq. The king's table, which would have been laid before them, would have consisted of fine foods and uh, rare meats, delicacies that even the average person today may not ever see. Beef, lamb, and fish, the finest produce, olives, dates, honey. 
There's no doubt this would have been a huge step up from their normal diet, which would consist of something like bread and onions, and certainly uh, a welcome sight after being starved out of the city for 18 months. Now, the first concern that Daniel and his friends had about this food was they were worried it might defile them. Scholars debate to some extent what this really means, but uh, in the very least, their thought is that this food would have violated Jewish food laws. You know, God had given his people as they entered the promised land a list of rules about what kinds of food to eat and what kinds of food not to eat. Some were called clean and some unclean. And so the first thought in Daniel's mind and his friend's mind would have been, will this food defile us? A second thought would be, has this food, specifically this meat, been sacrificed to idols? Therefore, by taking part of it, it would be akin to participating in a pagan worship ritual. A third concern would be maybe the main issue is these men had been cap- become captives. They didn't have control over what they did each day, when they got up and when they went to sleep, but maybe they had control over what they could put in their bodies. And so in this way, refusing the king's food would have been a way to uh, maintain their independence or to resist submission to their Babylonian captors. Whatever the case, Daniel and his friends chose to keep their kosher diet, to maintain their connection to and their alliance with Yahweh, the Hebrew God. They knew that they were taking a risk But sometimes God calls us to walk a path that looks risky from the outside, when in fact it involves very little or even no risk at all. Because when we have entrusted ourselves to God, we are in sure hands. Let me say this another way. In faith, risk is an illusion. The kingdom of God is a risk-free investment. The outcome is guaranteed. God's glory and your good. Surely, worldly things may be at risk. Health, wealth, prestige, accolades, comfort, even our very lives. But as Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There is no more sure investment than investing in the kingdom of God through obedience. The next major challenge facing Daniel and his friends was their re-education. Daniel is basically just like Gomorrah. Any MCU fans out there? Well, if you're not sure what the MCU is, just wait a few minutes and we'll get back to something that you understand and that you're familiar with. But for those of you who are in the know, Daniel's life mirrors Gomorrah's experience. Thanos, the mad titan, invades her land slaughters half the population and takes her under his wing. She comes to grow up and is trained in his culture, his values, with his resources at hand to become his heir apparent. Similar to this, Daniel had this experience. He came to Babylon. He was selected amongst all the youths. And then he was given a three-year education and says in verse five that the plan was to give them this all expenses paid time at Babylon University. Rather than simply swallow what was given to him, pun intended, Daniel chooses to learn the language, learn the art, learn the philosophy of his Babylonian captors, yet maintain his Hebrew distinctiveness, maintain his Hebrew identity through the Jewish kosher food laws and daily prayers and maintain his connection to Yahweh as the center of his life. 
Verse 19 reads this way. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Daniel and his friends actually graduated at the top of their class because of God's faithfulness to them. When I consider Daniel and his friends in this scenario, I see three takeaways for us to consider. One, students, not servants. Two, contrast, not camouflage. And three, prophets, not partakers. First, students, not servants. You need to recognize that you are more like Daniel than you think. No, you haven't had to watch your hometown overrun by an invading horde, and you haven't been marched hundreds of miles across the desert to another land. But if you follow Jesus, like Daniel, you are living behind enemy lines. We addressed this idea last time, considering how modern Western culture inundates us with identity claims. And if we aren't cautious, we will accept and assimilate an identity that has been thrust upon us, not the identity that God has given. Our godless society is preoccupied with outward appearances and past mistakes, future prospects, and self-indulgence. Culture is a crazy thing. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't smell it. But it is real, and it is powerful, and it is making claims, influencing us relentlessly every day. As Christians, we recognize that everywhere we turn, there are influencers vying for our attention. Governments, the media, marketing firms, the entertainment industry, each of these groups wants you to learn their wisdom and their language, and they want you to support their agenda. Let's consider how marketing influences us. A 2007 study performed at the University of Missouri in Columbia found that women of all shapes from size 4 to size 14 felt more negatively about their own bodies after only three minutes of viewing modern magazines filled with images of modern models. Although it doesn't say it in the print, the message was loud and clear. This is the standard of beauty. And you don't measure up. We've all heard about the negative effects of social media. A study by the University of Pennsylvania found that students who limited their exposure to Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat had fewer experiences of negative emotions and anxiety than those who didn't. That's right. Your FOMO is trying to tell you something. Oh, FOMO? Well, that's your fear of missing out. That's right. I had to look it up too. But FOMO is telling you that if you were cooler, then you would be in the know, that you would have been invited to that party, that you would have been at that great concert, that that amazing event wouldn't have passed you by. But you missed it. So these messages are everywhere. Mark Zuckerberg didn't set out to create a national epidemic of mental health problems, but unfortunately, that's where we find ourselves. So we need to be on our guard. We need to practice a little skepticism, a little introspection, like a parent who inspects each piece of candy at Halloween, throwing out what's bad and keeping what's good. We need to filter the messages that are coming in. And there's a scriptural precedent for this. Paul writes this. He says, for the weapons of our warfare 
are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and we tear down every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Did I mention this is not a culture war? This is a spiritual battle. Well, the gospel gives us spiritual weapons. Like Daniel, we can study the culture without becoming servants of the culture. And when we study the culture well, this will enhance our missional effectiveness. Pastor Paul Gould, in his lecture series on cultural apologetics, he identifies three ways that the Apostle Paul uses these strategies um, in his visit to Athens. The text reads like this. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all, to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is actually not far from each of us for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world and righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, in this remarkable passage, Paul does several things. He artfully capitalizes on aspects of Greek life and culture to build a compelling argument for Jesus Christ as the risen Savior. First, he begins by building bridges. He acknowledges their religiosity. He says, I too am a religious man seeking after God. He doesn't begin by criticizing their pagan worship. But instead, he says, you care about spiritualities just as I do. Next, he uses his personal observations about a local temple to make a connection to things that they don't yet know, which he desires to reveal to them, arguing that I see you are still looking for a deeper revelation. Likewise, we should be tapping into the longings and the desires of our modern age. You know, modern Americans are intensely disillusioned with life. They have tasted the greatest pleasures yet found them wanting. And they feel that life has nothing left to offer. We should be simultaneously working to show them, to argue both with our lives and to display uh, that Jesus Christ is the greatest desire and the greatest fulfillment of all that the human heart could ever long for. And finally, Paul makes mention of the three great themes of Greek philosophy life and progress and existence. And he says, the answer to these things can be found in this God who has given us as a final revelation, his son, Jesus Christ, the same God in whom we live and move and have our being. Paul masterfully speaks their spiritual language, their cultural language, not just to reach their minds, but to reach their hearts. We too can be students of the culture and artfully like Paul, and like Daniel, use our understanding of the culture around us to reach the people around us. Second, in order to do this, Daniel takes a path that is contrast, not camouflage. 
His very first move when he arrives to Babylon is to make this seemingly strange food request. The vegetarian diet might seem a bit strange, but putting it in perspective, we again remember that God had given his people these food laws and that they were a part of God calling out a people for himself, saying, I want you to be set apart. I want you to be distinctive. This desire that God has, that he would have a people, a family that it looks different from the rest of the world is a continuous theme running through his revelation. And Daniel recognized the importance in his everyday life. Distinctiveness. This has always been important to God. And the idea that people who are submitted to God would show that faithfulness by living set apart is critical. God wants us to stand out. He wants his covenant community to exhibit a cultural contrast, offering a true alternative to the way to live and to think. The point is that Daniel is being tempted to do like the Babylonians do. Ever hear the phrase, when in Rome, do like the Romans? The power of majority culture should not be underestimated. It is not a new phenomenon. Yet, Daniel chooses to live a life set apart, behind enemy lines. He stays true to his faith. And through it all, he and his friends, they end up in the best shape of all the students. Can you imagine this? It looks like a perfect Snapchat moment to me. Check out my organic farm-to-table pre-workout meal. Body by vegan. Power fuel. Who needs CrossFit? All the hashtags that you could think. Me, I would have been all over that buffet. Gobble, gobble. But it says here that Daniel considered his, his perspective, his position. He probably was thinking, you know, if I get started on the king's food, these rich uh, meals, this delicious fatty Kobe beef, this sugary dessert, I'll never be able to give that up. And once he's got me, he'll have me. So he stays true to God. And if the application of this point isn't immediately obvious to you, let me just suggest several areas of our culture where God's people are called to be set apart, called to live a distinctive and different kind of life. Generosity, forgiveness, sex and marriage, family, children, racism, justice, truth, the culture has its own views on all of these things and would love to have you follow along, especially if your money is involved. But God has called us out and called us to be different. And we know that if you aren't prepared for these things, you'll be caught off guard. I mean, if you plan to go to that hyped party that you saw on social media, you show up, you take a cup, you fill it with some purple drink or some great goose party punch, and you take a few sips, and then you decide you want to stay sober, I think you missed the bus. You know, they tell us that the element of surprise is a huge advantage in any battle. And in sports, they used to say, if you fail to prepare, then you have prepared to fail. Now, this can be done well and it can be done poorly. There are plenty of religious people over the history of the world who have chosen sectarianism. Now, sectarianism, just so you know, means to, to pull away and be so separate as to never have an interaction again. Think about the uh, desert fathers or the, the monks who withdrew and lived uh, uh, set apart from society completely. Now, don't get me wrong. The desert fathers have given us great wisdom in their writings. And if you're not reading books by dead Christians, you should be. But 
It's very difficult for you to have an influence on society, for you to have a missional impact if you're not in society, like salt. It can't season or flavor your food if it stays in the salt shaker in the cabinet across the kitchen. God has called us to be salt of the earth. In fact, this is what Jesus prays for in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's right, Father. Don't remove them from danger. Protect them from danger. Don't remove them from the culture. Protect them while they are in the culture. We need both an understanding of the culture and real proximity to it in order to be a compelling voice in the culture. To be successful, however, we need a game plan for maintaining our God-honoring distinctiveness so that we will have an added moral authority. I just had a conversation with a friend about the hypocrisy that he sees in the church, and I had very little defense except this. I asked him to keep looking for an authentic display of the Christian faith by people who truly follow Jesus and whose lives live it out, because I believe that when he sees it, he will have no defense. Third, become prophets to the culture, not partakers of the culture. Daniel and his friends excelled above their competition despite choosing a path that looked difficult. You know, it's just meat, man. It's not that big a deal. No, they didn't have to eat only vegetables, but they chose it because they wanted to stay true. They wanted to stay undefiled and untainted from the things that they felt could derail them or distract them from God. So they chose this path, and because of it, because of their distinctiveness, it actually provided them a platform when their lives and their actions add up. You know, when I was in medical school, we had to take this test called Step 1. It's an eight-hour computer-based test to basically test your knowledge of everything in medicine. The step one score is a very important part of your training because it often determines what kind of specialty you can pursue. And so this seems like one test to determine your future, one ring to rule them all. Now, the kids with top scores, they get the most competitive programs, and that usually leads to the most lucrative specialties and the best quality of life. And so everybody works pretty hard for this one test. Now, in order to get ready for this test, most students will take two full months and study for it. Um, I created a simple study plan when it was my turn. I spent six days a week studying for this test, 10 hours a day for eight weeks. It might sound like a lot, but it's only 480 hours of studying, so not a big deal. Um, but you'll notice I chose to study six days a week, not seven. At the time, I felt that it was a real challenge to my faith to do this, but that I wanted to stay uh, true to God. I wanted to honor him with not just my future job, but with my path to get there. And that observing the Sabbath was a big part of that. Now the Sabbath sounds like an archaic word. And if you ask most people in the street, they probably don't even recognize it. They wouldn't even know what it is, but the Sabbath was to God kind of a big deal. You know, God said, because I rested when I created the world, I want my people to take a day off and to rest. You would think this would be the easiest commandment to follow, actually. But if you live in a time of scarcity, when your productivity will determine which uh, of your children gets to eat or doesn't get to eat, that you live hand to mouth from the land, 
well, then you can start to understand why it might be difficult to take a day off. But God wanted his people to do that as a way of saying both with their mouths and with their lives that we trust you, Lord, for our provision. And just as you worked for six days and enjoyed the spoil of your labor, enjoyed the product, produce of your work, we will do the same. So there you have it. I took the day off. And when my friends heard about it, other students who were also preparing, in fact, the competition, because the test is graded on a curve, they thought I was crazy. But that's all right, because it gave me an opportunity to testify to my faith, to the fact that I was trusting in God. Now, I'd love to tell you that I had the greatest score, and like Daniel and his friends, I was found to excel 10 times better than everyone else. Well, I wasn't quite that good, but I did fine. And I knew, even more importantly at the time, that whatever score came back, that I had honored God with my life. And so sometimes our Christian faith will lead us down a path that looks foolish to the world, a path that doesn't quite make sense in the world's calculus. But we know that when we entrust ourselves to God, we are again making an investment in his kingdom and we cannot truly lose. I, I realized that studying like the world, studying like God didn't exist, and then worrying like prayer didn't matter would be an act of faithlessness. Well, God has honored me, and I believe he will honor you when you are facing similar challenges. We see that the path we, excuse me, we will see that the path that Daniel and his friends take is not an easy one. They end up facing life-threatening challenges to their uh, faithfulness to Yahweh. Daniel will face the lion's den and his friends face the fiery furnace, but God comes through miraculously for them as if to say, you have honored me, now I will honor you. They become, because of their lives, prophets to the culture, not partakers of the culture. Now, in fact, two separate Babylonian kings record professions of faith in, the Yahweh, in Yahweh, the Hebrew God, because of Daniel and his friends and their witness. I'm going to read to you from Daniel 6. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. Can you imagine if Daniel had served in a modern day government and had this kind of influence, left this kind of mark? on a Vladimir Putin or a Kim Jong-un or a Xi Jinping. Rather than being molded by the prevailing culture, Daniel becomes a molder of the culture. He was trained to promote Babylonian philosophy and language and music and art, but instead, he's, instead of serving the culture, he is shaping the culture. And he becomes an influencer of influencers. Now, we won't all stand before earthly kings, but we all have a sphere of influence. Even modern missionaries spend years studying and analyzing and understanding the culture that they're going into so that they can speak in a meaningful and winsome and compelling way. Now, you might say, I'm no missionary and I don't even think I'll ever be that. I'm not a Billy Graham or a great evangelist. That's okay. You can still be an Albert McMakin. Who was McMakin, you ask? Well, McMakin is the guy who brought Billy Graham to church. And in that 
tent meeting, Billy Graham heard the gospel and it changed the trajectory of his lives and the lives of millions. You never know what the impact of your faithfulness could be. So whether you see yourself as a rising star like Daniel or just a nobody on the margins, the challenge before you today is to decide what kind of life you will live and to whom you will give your allegiance. Will you allow the influencers of the age to dictate what you love, how you live? Or will you take the reins and grab a hold of the life that God is offering to you? Grab a hold of God's call to shape the culture. Everybody serves something. The culture, your personal agenda, money, fame, success, you name it. But you cannot serve two masters. Personally, I like the way that Joshua puts it. He says this, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served or the gods in the land where you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.